Hey everybody, welcome to Just for Variety. I'm your host, Mark Malkin. Today is February 1st, 2023. My first guest this week is Jay Shetty. The self-help guru and New York Times bestselling author has just released his new book, Eight Rules of Love, How to Find It, Keep It, and Let It Go. The host of the health and wellness podcast On Purpose talks to me about love and romance, officiating Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck's wedding, and why he thinks The Notebook is an unhealthy depiction of romance. Then later in the show, Ben Aldridge. The British actor is here for a chat about his new movie, the M. Night Shyamalan thriller, Knock at the Cabin. Aldridge also gets emotional while talking about the moment he came out as gay with an Instagram post not even three years ago. But before I get to Shetty and Aldridge, let's take a look at this week's Just for Variety column. It's not every day that an action movie stars an 80-year-old. But leave it to octogenarian Harrison Ford to return as Indiana Jones in Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, the fifth installment of the iconic franchise. While moviegoers may be surprised to see Ford return four decades after making the first film, the actor has long felt he'd be back. I always wanted to do it, he told me at the premiere of his Apple TV Plus comedy series Shrinking, I wanted to do the rest of the story to see the end of his career. But even Ford has his limits. He insists he's hung up Indy's fedora and bullwhip for good. It's the last time for me, he said. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to Just for Variety. I'm talking to Jay Shetty. The former monk is a New York Times bestselling author and host of On Purpose, a health and wellness podcast. He has earned a major Hollywood following, so much so that he officiated Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck's wedding in August. And now Shetty has released his new book, Eight Rules of Love, How to Find It, Keep It, and Let It Go. We caught up over Zoom from his home in Los Angeles. And wait till you hear what he has to say about The Notebook. Hey, Mark. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I love how right on time you are. You're amazing. Oh, of course, of course. I could have really been looking forward to this. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Me too. Um, what a great book, man. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That means the world. Thank you for making the time. That's the, the best thing an author can hear is that. So thank you. Um, it's a book I needed. It's a book I need. Um, I know about heartbreak. I know about trying to find love, not finding love, falling out of love, falling in love, grief, healing. Um, I think the last time we spoke, we were on the carpet. Um, and we were talking about shame. 
Um, so I guess my first question for you is like, where did the book come from? Why did you think, you know what, this needs to be told. I need to help people in this area. Yeah, there were a few things. First of all, I just want to point out how sharp you look, even on, on Zoom. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm impressed. You, you, you know, you look good on the carpet, but, I, but I'm very impressed. Uh, sorry, I got, di- I got distracted, but I'll, I'll get back. So uh, there were a few reasons. The first is I think that I've, I've always been personally obsessed with love and romance. I'm, I'm fascinated by it. And I've made so many mistakes in relationships. I've personally had so many challenges and everything you just explained just now. And when I write a book, I think about what do I want to be immersed in for the next two to three years? Because I know it's going to take that much research and reading and interviewing and learning and speaking to people who've been dating for three dates and people who've been married for three decades. Like that was the work that went into the book. And what came out of it, Mark, that really stood out to me, which is why this book I felt I had to write, was that I was meeting people who were having success in their career, they were having success financially, they were having success in their professional lives. But because they didn't have a partner, because they didn't have love, or their home life was detrimental or full of pressure and stress, they actually were feeling incomplete, inadequate, and unfulfilled. Mm. And at the same time, Mark, I saw the opposite, where someone may not have had their professional life together, but because they had their love life together, they felt a certain strength and confidence and hope that they could figure things out. And so I could clearly see that the quality of love in our lives was a key indicator as to the quality of our entire lives. But guess what? We never learned how to love at school. We don't really talk about it openly enough about the challenges and the issues in a healthy way to grow. And at the same time, it seems like career and success kind of trumps love and joy and these words that feel softer and less important. And so for all those reasons, I wanted love to be plastered all over the world. And that's why we even chose the cover that we did because I wanted everyone to feel, see and experience love even if they didn't read the book. Listen, we know know, know, there've been we probably can never count how many books there are about love, how many advice columns, um, talks, um, apps. What makes this book the book that, listen, no one's ever going to be perfect. No one's ever going to find the perfect love, whatever that means. We know that's a fantasy. But what makes your book, okay, you want to figure this out for yourself? Come to the eight rules of love. Yes. So the eight rules of love doesn't treat love as a ethereal, intangible, spiritual concept. Instead, I break down love as a set of habits, skills, and daily practices. So it's probably the most tactical, practical version of how to find love, keep love, and let it go in that there are exercises, there are meditations, there are workshops, there are reflections. I wanted love to feel like something you could work towards, not something that you wish and want and hope will just magically manifest in your life. And some people would argue that that takes the magic out of it. And I would argue that, well, the magic hasn't worked so far. So so it's important that we open ourselves up to this new view 
The other thing I'd say is that all of my work ties together ancient wisdom, modern science, and then pop culture. And so when I write a book, when I, when I take on any task, I look back into spiritual texts and wisdom texts that are over 5,000 years old, mm -hmm. and I try and extrapolate and excavate the truths. I then find the modern science that is parallel to some of those insights and challenges it. And so you can tell that everything's been researched and thought through. And then my job is to give you the strategies and the steps to actually put it forward in your life. And so the book really brings those three areas together. Uh, so that's what I would say makes Eight Rules of Love different. So and by the way, I'm a big fan of other love books too. Like I can name some of my favorite ones, like Modern Romance by Aziz is probably one of my favorite love mm -hmm. books. Uh, the Five Love Languages, I believe, is a, a brilliant book about love. So I, I'm also a fan of this, this genre, and I, I want to point that out. So let's talk about pop culture. Let's talk about Hollywood. Obviously, um, you're very popular in this town. Um, but one of the things that people talk about love is Hollywood puts out this idea, this romance. I'm going to meet him on the top of the Empire State Building, and it's going to work. Is Hollywood just perpetuating this <clears throat> misery? I'm going to use misery in the end because it perpetuates this fairy tale, this, this idea of, like you just said, that it's not magical, but where Hollywood says, you know what? It is magical. What is, yeah, what? and I, I, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, Mark. Oh, no, go, go ahead, go ahead. So... I think, so So love definitely has magic to it. I just think that the process to find it needs to be more uh, thoughtful in, in the way that I present in Eight Rules of Love. I would say that where movies have misled us, music makes us feel heard. And so I think when you look at this town, like a lot of us, when we're going through a tough breakup or we're even in a fun, exciting part of a relationship, we can all remember the soundtrack to that relationship or the soundtrack that we listened to when we were broken up with. And so music kind of gives us this safe space of being heard. And so, uh, but I agree with you. And, and I would say that I do think movies have misled us towards thinking that it's all magic or that there isn't work and effort and energy that goes into it. And I think it comes from the famous statements of happily ever after and how movies always end on the wedding day or, you know, you finally find that person perfectly after many years. Now, all of those things are beautiful things about love that I believe in, that I value. I, I want people to have that kind of a love. This book is dedicated to helping you have that experience of love, but the journey to that love is very different. Right. And so while the end may be where we all want to be, I think the journey we take is different. And, and that's what I want to help people build genuinely, intentionally, and design in their lives. Uh, I think marketing and advertising, Mark, have even more to do it. I give the example in the book about the idea of, uh, you know, I, I remember when I was proposing to my wife, I went up to a friend of mine and I asked him, like, I'm thinking of proposing. How do you do it? Like, what, what goes on? And he said to me, well, yeah, you got to get a ring and these are the best places to get it from. And I was like, okay, like a diamond ring. Like, how do I know it's a good diamond? And he was explaining it to me. And then he, and then I said, how much do I spend? I have no idea. And he said, you spend two to three months salary. And I was like, all right, cool. Like, and, and I just took it as like face value. Like, cool. That's a cool number. And that at least it made sense. Cause I was like, okay, two to three months of what I make. That's fine. I can figure that out. 
And then years later, I watched this advert on YouTube that I came across and the advert is a De Beers commercial. And the De Beers commercial has this beautiful black and white silhouette of this woman. And the only thing you see is her sparkling diamond ring. And then at the end of it, it literally ends with the words and everyone can Google this and watch this. And it says, what better way to spend two to three months salary? And that advert is from like 30, 40 years ago. I forgot the date. And, and it's unbelievable because I'm thinking, wow, like that piece of marketing and advertising has lasted decades to impact a random guy in London, who, by the way, doesn't know what De Beers is because they don't have a big presence in London. So I look at that and I go, yes, we have had so many ideas about love uh, formulaically presented to us that we've adopted. And this book is about finding the love you want to create, not the love that everyone's telling you to create, but what's the love of experience you want to have? Well, I love, I mean, I love how open you are about your proposal. (laughs) Yeah. You basically said, I fucked up. Yes, I did. I was lucky. My, I mean, I don't know how much you want me to tell. I'll I'll tell the story if that, if that's what you're asking for, but, but, but my wife, uh, I'm lucky. My wife said yes. And I look back and I, I often think about that. And I think, what was I thinking about? So like I said, I've always loved romance. I've always considered myself a romantic. I love Hollywood movies. So I'm, I'm totally swept up and even more so I love Bollywood Uh, as an Indian man. And Bollywood is even like Bollywood is Hollywood on steroids when it comes to (laughs) romance. So you have, you know, you have like a string quartet that comes out from the trees. Uh, You have multiple outfit changes in one musical scene. Like everyone can sing in Bollywood. Now I can't sing. So I didn't, I didn't try and sing, but I tried to recreate that. So for everyone who doesn't know, for my proposal, and I tell this story at the beginning of the book, uh, for my proposal, I planned uh, like a proposal extravaganza inspired by Instagram and everything else. And I took my wife for a long walk by the bank of the Thames. Randomly, when she was least expecting it, she was surprised with a bouquet of flowers from this group or troupe who happened to be an acapella group who were fantastic, who sang Bruno Mars' Will You Marry Me beautifully and brilliantly better than I ever could. I got down on one knee proposed to her, asked her to marry me. This part was perfect. I'm very happy with what I said to her. Uh, She thankfully said, yes. We sat down and had a dinner on the bank of the Thames. Now, here's the thing. I assumed that because of the romantic gesture I was doing, a restaurant would just let me have a table by the bank of the Thames, which I tried to finagle my way into having. Not only was it hard to get the table, it wasn't glamorous at all. The food I'd ordered came cold and not fully cooked because it was delivered from a vegan restaurant because uh, my wife and I are both, uh, I'm plant-based and she's vegan. And so we sat down to have this meal and it was cold. And now anyone who knows my wife will know this. If you don't know my wife, I'll tell you right now. My wife is a vegan recipe developer and lover of food. She's a dietitianist and a nutritionist. The number one thing that's important to her is food and the food sucked. It wasn't the bad restaurant. It was, it was just It was just cold. Then we walked around the corner and right around the corner, we had a horse-drawn carriage, a white horse-drawn carriage. It looked stunning. She was fully surprised. We jumped on the horse. We Sorry, jumped on the carriage. We traveled around. um, And my wife, you know, we're on this journey together. We get off on the other side. Uh, We get on a train to go back home. And all of a sudden, 
Um, we start to notice something, but anyway, I'll, I'll save that. We get, we get to her parents' home to tell them the good news. I'd already asked their permission. They knew what was going on. Uh, we go to see them. And the first thing they do when they open the door, they say to my wife, they say, what happened to your face? Are you okay? What did he do to you? Right? It was like, that was their reaction because she had hives all over her face, like full of red boils and marks. That was the day I realized that my wife was allergic to horses and I had no idea. Um, and, and so all of that to say that I messed up the food, she got the allergic reaction. I messed up on the things that were most important to her. She still said yes and had a good time. She never complained. She never, she never made a thing of it. But to me, it was a sign that if I was to, it's been 10 years since we've been dating now. If I was to propose again this year, it would be so different. And that made me realize just how, what I thought love looked like and what love truly is are two very different things. That proposal could have been anyone's proposal. Actually, I could make a business out of selling that proposal to other people. I mean, uh, and yeah. Li listening to it, you know, I'm laughing now. Obviously, I know this story beforehand, but I'm listening to it and you sound like a producer for The Bachelor. <laughs> yeah. That was, de and I didn't even know what The Bachelor was when I planned it. So yeah, but, th but that's exactly it, right? You're, you're thinking that love has to be this extravagant, like this big, massive gesture of love. And my wife's response was, we could just literally, well now, because we live in America, obviously in LA, it's like, we could just go to Trader Joe's and you could buy me some bread. Like, like that would be her ideal date. And, uh, you know, I, I always thought that everyone wanted this grand gesture and my, my wife didn't. So when do you start developing rom-coms? <laughs> and seriously, like they're, you know, we don't want the fantasy taken away. You do want the magic, but are there scripts? Are there shows? Are there movies you want to develop that sort of go along with the eight rules of love, but could also have some appeal? Mark, I love, I love how you think. I really love how you think. <laughs> and I'm glad, I'm glad that you're uh, uh, taking the conversation in this direction. Absolutely. I, I love shows that are showing a real side to so much of what is happening uh, behind the scenes. Uh, one of the shows that I absolutely love is Ted Lasso. And the reason why I love Ted Lasso so much is because even in the most positive you know, person, you get to see the challenges that that person has internally. You get mm -hmm. to see the mental health journey. You get to see behind the scenes. I think that for me, definitely, I would love for Eight Rules of Love to inspire shows that are based on the realities that come with trying to keep love and find love and lose love and you know stop making people feel that they are going to bump into someone at a grocery store or they they are going to just miraculously end up with someone's number on their phone or you know like you're going to be approached randomly by the perfect gentleman on the streets because you forgot something that fell behind like i think it's about and I think that's where television is going. I think that's where movies are going because I think audiences are wiser. I think audiences are more informed and audiences are looking to see themselves portrayed on screen more as opposed to, not that it isn't an escape anymore, but they are seeing some reality to it. So, so absolutely, you're on, you're on, the, uh, on the money. So are, so are you developing the eight rules of love reality show? 
Not yet, not yet, uh, but but definitely uh, definitely part of the plan. So, like I said, I, I look at the back of the book, Jennifer Lopez, Sean Mendez, two bigger, you can't get any bigger superstars than that. Why, why are you resonating in this town where there is so much to sort of get through to try to resonate? Why are the Jennifer Lopez's the Shawn Mendezes, the the Gwyneth Paltrow's, the Selena Gomez's. Why why do you resonate with them? Mark, I should I maybe I should ask you that question. You know the town <laughs> better than I do. Uh, I, I'll be honest, Mark, and say that I'm I'm extremely humbled and grateful to know these people that I listened to growing up, or or you know watched growing up and appreciated growing up, and I'm very grateful to know them in a in a genuine way and and I and I really value my relationships with them. I think that I I would hope that things resonate because they're coming from a deep intention to serve from my side. When I started doing what I do, I had no idea that it would ever reach where it's reached today. I had no plan for that. I I was happy if I could have done this in my evenings and weekends because it was my passion and my my heart. And so my hope is, my intention is that when I'm speaking, when I'm teaching, when I'm writing, when I'm coaching, I'm hoping that the heart of who I am and the work that I've done and the work I've dedicated to is what's resonating. And at the same time, I also consider myself to be, you know, I, I, I'm very fortunate to have a lot of different experiences. I, I was born and raised in London. I I lived my monk life in India. I've lived in New York City and LA. Like, I feel like I have a very global view of the world. Mm -hmm. And I've also had very random and unique experiences that allow me to connect dots uh, that otherwise are seemingly opposite and incoherent. And I mm -hmm. think I sit at a paradox where people are able to accept like, oh, well, Jay can relate to me. And at the same time, he's involved in a, in a deeper unknown world. And I think... I, I enjoy and appreciate my ability to oscillate between these two worlds. Uh, and, and, I, and I think that people feel that I don't judge them. I don't criticize them. I don't, I don't have a whole, I don't think I'm better than anyone. I don't think that I'm wiser than anyone. I, I come at it from a place of humility and service. So I hope those are the things that resonate. And talk about being of service. You officiate Jennifer and Ben. Listen, I, you know, you're not going to tell me about your private discussions with them, and I would never expect you to do that. But you're standing there, like you said, like <laughs> you didn't know this was going to be your life. You're standing there, Jennifer Lopez in front of you in a wedding dress. Then have like in a tuxedo, you know, I, I'm old enough to be remember the first time around <clears throat> covering that as a reporter. What is going through your mind? Uh, great question. Uh, the first thing I'd say is that they, they both obviously looked outstanding. Um, and what the first thing or the, or the most, like the, the deepest, most uh, cherished memory that I'll keep from that day is getting to see love up close. Mm -hmm. And I think I've officiated uh, a few weddings I've, this was, um, probably third or fourth now that I've officiated. Uh, and I feel as an officiant, you get to see love up close. Mm. 
And what mm. I mean by that is you get to see the trembling of the lips, you get to see the shaking of the hands, you get to see the, the, the tears that are just about to drop from the <laughs> eyes. Like to me, it's like time slowed down where I could really just observe these genuine expressions of love that don't come from what we say, but they come out of our body because it's such a physical experience. And so watching their, their lips quiver and their hands shake and the, the tears roll, like that to me is what's going through my mind is how beautiful it is to see true love up close. Uh, and, and I would say to everyone that if you ever get to see two people in love, just observe these very, mm. uh, you know, they're not holding each other. This is from a, this is standing, right. you know, like on either side, like the, the hands are not even touching. It's, it's such an amazing experience. And to feel that energy and that electricity uh, between two people who've waited so long for this moment, uh, there, there's nothing like it. And so I would encourage everyone, when you're next at a wedding, look mm. out for the small things. We get carried away by the decor and the, right. the grandeur of the event and the, the flowers. And it's like, well, forget all of those things and just observe these two people who are about to make vows and, and love each other. And, and that's what I'll remember, the moment when Jennifer walked down the aisle and Ben was fully emotional and and just that that complete uh, presence, um, and and just that that pure love and that they share with each other. So I, I hopefully that gives you enough of what oh, I was experiencing that day. And and then of course, actually, actually, the number one thing, Mark, that was going through my mind was, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, <laughs> because I'm a full on crier, wow. uh, and and I love love. I literally love love. And the whole time I was like, Jay, you have to hold it together because you've got to lead the ceremony. You can't start crying before the whole thing starts. <laughs> and so the whole time I was like, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. I was just walking, talking myself down. So I had to like, just pull myself together because I love love. And every part of me just wanted to like sob full of love. So what are your favorite romantic movies? Oh, good question. All right. So an old classic uh, that I got to, when I interviewed Matthew, I got to tell him, I, I'm a big fan of How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. It has to, it has to be up there. I think I watched that movie with uh, too many ex-girlfriends uh, and, <laughs> and it was, uh, it was, it's still a great, I can still watch it today and enjoy it. And I think that's what, that's what makes it, it's such a good movie. I've always loved, um, he's just not that into you. I think that mm -hmm. was a movie that showed a fair bit of reality and truth in relationship. Oh. I think that movie carried it really well, obviously loved the entire cast. Um, and the movie that I, I love, I have a love hate relationship with, and maybe this is unpopular opinion, uh, but it's the notebook. And I'll tell you why it's, it's a why? beautiful story, but there's moments in it that, that are so unhealthy. So there's this moment where uh, <laughs> Ryan Gosling's character, I forget his name. Um, if you, I don't know, I can't remember his name, but Ryan Gosling's character goes up to Rachel McAdams' character and says, uh, I'll be anything you want. I'll do anything you want. Like, I'll be whatever you want me to be. And I'm like, that's bad relationship advice. Please don't do this. Uh, and then there's another scene where he's literally hanging off a Ferris wheel. And he says to her, like, if you don't go on a date with me, I will let go. And you know, those kind of things are, are extremely triggering today. Like if someone came up to you and says, hey, by the way, I'm gonna, I'm gonna 
let go and potentially die if you don't go out with me. Like those are not healthy messages, but that's how love's been portrayed. And so that's the kind of stuff we want to take away from our conversations on love. And we want people to find that uh, beautiful life, uh, long, lifelong love. I was just, I was just talking to, I was just interviewing someone else about the way we were. That's one of my favorite romantic yes. dramas. Yes. Yes. Beautiful. Uh, this, wow. I feel like I can keep talking to you forever because <laughs> we haven't even talked about solitude and loneliness and what, you know, and I love what you say in the book. It's, you know, you, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm summarizing this incorrectly, like we need to be okay in our solitude. Yes. And that to me, after I've been in love, after I've had a breakup, the solitude, I call it the loneliness, solitude is the better part, the better way of saying it. That's the toughest part. That's the totally. part. We, we have to realize that there's a you before a relationship, a you during a relationship, yes. and a you after a relationship. And I think because we don't know who we are before a relationship, we lose ourselves in the relationship. And then when the relationship ends, we feel lost. And so it's a really interesting journey that we all go on. And it's natural to want to be with someone, but all the research shows, Mark, that if you get into a relationship because you're scared of being alone or you fear being alone, chances are three things happen. The first is you settle for less than you deserve. So when you're making a decision to be with someone because you feel alone, you actually lower your standards and you mm -hmm. pretty much take anything. The second thing that happens is you become more dependent on them because more often than not, you feel, oh my God, I'm so lucky to have them. Without them, I'd be so incomplete. Oh my gosh, like I've, I've got to hold on to them. So you feel dependent on them. And the third thing that happens is you actually can't break up with them, even if it's unhealthy and toxic, because you think being alone is so bad. And so we make so many bad decisions in relationships. And I think we can all relate to these, me included. We make so many bad decisions in relationships because we're scared of being alone. And so what I recommend in this book is that we build a better relationship with ourselves by spending time alone, because what that does is it gives you a space of safety and security in who you are. Now, when you walk into a relationship, you know what you bring to the table, you know what you have to offer, you know what you're gonna connect on. And now if things don't go the way you want them to go, you have something to not even just come back to, but go into. And you have, and a, so you I, have a base, you have that, sh you have a foundation. That's you have not a foundation. But again, Mark, our language has misled us. Oh, they complete me. Oh, where's your better half? Better if, half yeah. if someone's your better half, does that mean you're the worst half? And <laughs> uh, now you're left on your own as the worst half or you're left alone incomplete. And, and, you know, even though I would say my wife is my better half in many ways, it's, I don't believe I'm a half. I, you know, she's just an amazing human, but that doesn't make me any less than. And I think, I think we think that if we're going to make someone feel superior, we have to feel inferior. And that incompleteness in ourselves and completeness in someone else actually weighs much worse on our self-esteem and self-worth. And so I don't want people to think that their self-worth is based on someone else's validation. Mm. So time alone 
gives you the space to define your own self-worth. There's a reason it's called self-worth, not right. other worth or their worth or partner's worth. And I, I think that's what solitude is for. And not, and should you watch The Notebook by yourself or make sure someone's there with you? <laughs> uh, def- yeah, exactly. Um, definitely, definitely watch it. Definitely watch it. Uh, watch it with yourself too. Watch it with yourself. Notice how different it is. So you, Mark, you just brought up something interesting. There's something called the context effect. And the context effect in psychology is the idea that they did a study where they found that if people hold warmer drinks on dates, they have warmer feelings towards each other. So there's a reason we ask people to go out for a coffee because you're, you're likely to have warmer feelings. And, and right. they did research on this. They also found that if someone walks out of uh, a romantic comedy at a theater, you're thinking in your head, I'm going to cross eyes with someone and this could be special. Or we all feel we're going to fall in love at a wedding because right. love is all around. And so the context effect is really interesting. When you watch The Notebook with someone, you think we're going to be together forever because we watched this movie together. So got to be very careful with the context effect. My last question for you, what is love? So I think there are so many beautiful definitions of love. And as I promised to do in this book, I promised to be your friend, to be honest with you and to guide you transparently in what it truly is, not mislead you, I define love as three things. Love is when you like someone's personality, when you respect their values, and when you're committed to helping them achieve their goals. And when that person is willing to do those three things for you too. That is love. And if you look at love through that definition, you will very clearly and quickly figure out whether you have a long-term future with someone. I, I had someone the other day say to me, Jay, I'm getting married. Uh, what's your advice for me? And I said, tell me your favorite things about your partner's personality. And what I found is the answers are very vague. They're kind, they're generous. And I was like, you can pretty much say that about everyone. Um, I said, do you respect their values. What are their key values? They said family. I was like, that's pretty broad too. What about their family do they value? And then I said, what are their goals over the next three years, one year, five years? And they said, I'm I'm not really sure. And I was like, well, that's where you want to start because when you marry someone, it's not about, or even if you have a relationship with someone, even if you don't get married, you don't experience the chemistry. You experience the compatibility, the character, and the connection. That's what you experience. Mm. And everything starts with chemistry, but it has to evolve into compatibility and character and connection. And so if you don't know anything about compatibility, character and connection, then you're just relying on one of the four parts of love. Jay, this is awesome. Thank you, Mark. That was so much fun. That was so much fun. And uh, I appreciate the direction you took it in. I I hope I did justice to your audience. and. I'm so grateful for your support and I hope we bump into each other a lot more. Me too. Me too. Go uh, have a beautiful Thursday. Thank you for this um, pep talk. And I'm just going to go try to find someone to run into and fall in love with. (laughs) (laughs) I love it, Mark. I love it. Well, three places. Look for people of value, people that have similar values that you think know those people. Do projects of similar value and go to places of similar value. I know so many more people that have found someone 
working at a charity or a soup kitchen, uh, working on a cycling club or a sports club that they love, or through a person that is good friends with both. Those are the three most amazing ways I've seen people meet recently. So I wish you all the best and uh, awesome. wish everyone listening all the best with love as well. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. Yeah, Take thank care. you so much. Bye. Take care. Bye, Mark. That was Jay Shetty. Now I'm going to take a short break, but when we return, Fleabag and spoiler alert actor Ben Aldridge opens up about coming out as gay and starring as Jonathan Groff's husband in M. Night Shyamalan's new thriller, Knock at the Cabin. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back to Just For Variety. I'm your host, Mark Malkin. TV audiences first took notice of Ben Aldridge in Fleabag. Then, just a few months ago, he broke our hearts as entertainment journalist Michael Asiello's late husband, Kit Cowan, in Spoiler Alert. Now, he's back on the big screen in M. Night Shyamalan's Knock at the Cabin. Aldridge and Jonathan Groff play husbands whose vacation in the woods with their young daughter takes a horrifically tragic turn when their house is invaded by four very violent strangers. I talked to Aldridge from London as he was getting ready to fly to the U.S. for the New York premiere of Knock at the Cabin. We talked about singing with Groff, coming out at age 34, his favorite drag queens, he even reveals his own drag name. Hey! There he is. How you doing? Good, how are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Nice to see you. Good to see you. How are you? Yeah, good. I'm good. Done a a day of this, but it's been really nice to talk about the film and saw it last night with an audience, which was fun. What time is it there where you are now? It is 5.50, so it's early for you, right? Um, It's 9.50 a.m. Oh yes, yes, nice. Yeah, it's a it's a perfect time. I was saying um, earlier, it's when some of these interviews happen, and it's like someone in Australia, and it's like Nicole Kidman could talk to you at three in the morning. I'm like, it's Nicole Kidman. I'll get up at three in the we'll morning. We'll do it. You're not going to say no. No, no, I'm not going to say no. <laughs> um, so I saw the movie last night, right? And I was scared to come home. Even though I don't live in a cabin in the woods, I do live by myself on the ground floor. There are a lot of windows. Right, yeah. Oh, thanks for that. Fearful for that home invasion moment. (laughs) So let's start off because obviously this is the kind of film where there could be potential spoilers and, you know, we don't want to ruin it for anyone. So when someone says to you, tell me what the film's about, what do you say? I say 
Um, I say it is a. Oh, that, you've got to, I've, I've got to give you the pitch, right? Yeah, so, the pitch. <laughs> it's a family that are given the ultimate ultimatum, the ultimate ultimatum <laughs> of um, uh, saving themselves or saving humanity. But there's a knock on the cabin. There's knock on the but there's knock on the cabin. Yeah. Did you not like the pitch? <laughs> it was it was good. You want more of a you want more of an outline. Yeah, like <laughs> what, what what kind of so you and Jonathan Groff are a couple, you have your 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 daughter, and you're in a cabin in the woods. Yeah. Is you know the setting for a great thriller always. Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden someone is knocking on your door. Knocking on our door, yeah, and it's so it's a home, so it's a home invasion, almost straightforward home invasion horror film, but with uh, you know obviously devastating ramifications for the family at the center of it, but actually like global devastating ramifications um, outside outside of that family, and it's like this as a, as like with a lot of his films, it's a runaway train, like the stakes start here and they it's completely relentless mm. um it was relentless to read it was relentless to make and it feels like yeah it's so interesting he's he's like nights like a lightning rod for for audience reactions and press reactions i think and there's mm. some there, there was something there was, there's been something nail biting about every step of the process and now there's something nail biting about kind of like releasing that into into the world as well um which is almost as nail biting as making it when you filmed it, did you film it in sequence? Like, was yeah. it filming going with what was going on in my heart and me white knuckling it the whole time? Yeah, absolutely. We filmed all of the flashback stuff in the first three days and everything else we shot pretty much in chronological order. So and most of the flashback stuff is kind of is is the, are the only bits of levity in the entire piece yeah. so we kind of like got that out of the way and then <laughs> just like yeah then it was like jumping on board this like runaway train and 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 the, the shooting in chron- chronological order really really helped because it, of the way it ramps up and the way it's kind of incremental i would have, I would have been, it would be really hard to shoot this out of sequence i think also given that we you know we we, we were so often in that same location and like you could probably kind of get quite confused and lost in it. But uh, I was really, when he said that he was sh- shooting it most in chronology, I was like, I was very, very pleased, but yeah, nothing is ever, I've never been as affected by a film as I was by this in terms of, um, I've been emotionally affected by stuff and like spoiler alert, I found incredibly emotionally um, affecting. But this was like the fear, the fear of it, the, it got kind of like got inside my body, the tension, playing that level of tension and like, and committing and f- feeling so fiercely pro- protective and in love with the family and just like fighting for our lives. That, that was just like, it was, it was tiring. It was, over, it was overwhelming to do that every day for eight weeks and be tied to a chair every day for like eight weeks as well. It was pretty, it was pretty intense. It was incredibly intense. What's incredible, I, at the end of the movie, I wrote in my notes, I'm like, no wardrobe change, really. You were the no same because it's one, it, if I'm correct, it's just one day. 
Yeah, it's it's set over it's set over two days actually. Okay, yeah, there's, two there's days. a they do go to well they they, they sleep overnight in in, right. their, in the chairs at one point. Yeah, right. So yeah. you didn't have to do much wardrobe change. How no. many of those t-shirts did you have? Millions. <laughs> so many of those t-shirts. So many of that that pair of shorts. Um, like like yeah, the the an endless amount of doubles for those things. Yeah. So what are you saying? It was an easy task. <laughs> this is a really easy job for you because you didn't. He have doesn't to- have to do any costume changes. How easy? Yeah. It's not, it's not you- Drag Race. <laughs> oh, that- oh, so someone wants to do Drag Race? Celebrity? Oh, someone drag did. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna ask you. What's your drag name, Ben? Oh, my drag name is um, Sue Blime. Sue Blime. Oh, yeah. Wow. Wow, so you thought about this. That was yeah. Sublime. And what's sublime like then? I don't I haven't I haven't she she hasn't been out in drag yet, so I don't know. I'm not sure, but I'm 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 up for discovering. Uh but yeah, sublime. What would yours be? You know, I I don't you know what? I don't know if I've actually I always do that, you know, it's like the street you grew up on and your dog's name. Yeah. But then that would have been like 85th Street PJ. I mean, which makes no sense. No, it hasn't got the ring to it. Yeah. Um, I feel like I just would want to be called Girl. Girl. Girl is really good. It's girl. Because uh, with Sue Blime, I'm quite into the idea of just being called Sue. I think that's quite a funny name for... because yeah, it, It's such a... Name. Just a, like yeah, just such a name, such a regular name. But Sublime is the Sublime is the full name. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm gonna get back to Drag Race in a minute. Okay, um, do, were you familiar with the with the novel that the movie is based on? No, I wasn't. I he, Knight had um, obviously I wasn't even allowed to read a script before before he had decided he wanted me to play it. So I had three scenes to do an audition tape with that weren't um, part of the movie that aren't which were part, part of the movie but i had no context for wow the only thing i had in the email was that dave dave bautista was attached to be in it so mm-hmm. i made i made the audition tape a week later i did a zoom with night it was probably about an hour and 45 minutes of like working the scenes he wouldn't give me any more information about the film he would give me a bit more information about the character but he was like you don't need more information about the film and uh, but he also just really wanted to get to know me as a person. I think he's very fastidious about the chemistry, the group chemistry and who he's putting with who. And he he really wants to know someone, I think, before he puts them in the film. And then so three days after uh, doing the Zoom with him, I got a phone call from him, which is obviously really unusual because it didn't come from an agent. It just came. I was like, I'm like, someone's calling me. Um, and he said, I'd like to, I'd like to make this film. I'd like you to come on the journey of making this film with me with his words. And I was like, cool, right. What is the film? <laughs> and he said, um, I'm going to send you a link. It expires in 24 hours. So you have 24 hours in which to click on the link. Once you've clicked on the link, you have six hours to read it. And then the, the link will explode. What is, um, what is this? Mission Impossible? Mission, literally Mission Impossible. And he was like, and then let me know if you want to do the film. Obviously, I was already like, I'm not going to I'm not going to say no to M. Night yeah. Um, But I was curious. I didn't know like the size of the part. I didn't know the thrust of the story arc. And I, 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 I was so I was so gripped, but also like um, 
very daunted, very intimidated by it. Like as it was unfolding, I, I've never read any, I've genuinely have never read anything so violent and so shocking. And like when I started reading about the, the cloth white bags they were putting on their heads and the weapons are very detailed in the script. I was like, what, what is this? It's so dark. Like what is going on? And then I was kind of reading the arc and, and like, uh how much andrew is like fighting and denying and he is the cynic and there's that i was like oh this is going to be there's going to this is going to involve so much acting <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be intense it's yeah. going to be relentless and by the time i got to that final scene between andrew and eric and the the choice that um andrew has to make having believed the antithesis of it for the entire film and then turning on a dime and and having to pull well, wait, we won't do spoilers, but having to make the choice that he has to make um, without fully having faith in that choice. Um, I was so intimidated by that scene. It, from the moment I read it, I was like, how am I going to, how am I going to do this? And even when we started on day one, knowing that we we're filming it chrono chronologically, I just had so much fear around getting to that scene, partly because I didn't want to have to like, go through it, but also like, mm -hmm. I was like, whoa, how am I going to, play all of that um yeah but the whole thing was kind of scary <laughs> i mean did it, it's hard to we can't really talk about this because it is a spoiler but yeah but i walked out of the movie going okay what choice would i make it's right excuse my french but it is fucked up <laughs> yes <laughs> it is like, choose that yeah so did you have a chemistry read on Zoom or in person with Jonathan? I mean, no, we didn't. I think Knight, Knight's, Knight just uh, said that he was sure that it would work between Jonathan and I and and we had never we'd never met. I I've long been aware of him. I um I was first aware of him when I was 21 graduating drama school because I did I auditioned for a year. I did 12 auditions to play Melchior, his part in Spring Awakening. So when I was 21, I was listening to Jonathan sing Spring Awakening all the time because he was teaching me the music just, just by listening right. to him. And so he's always been someone, I didn't get the part. It's, it's like the thing that's actually genuinely one of the things I've been most upset about, not in terms of not getting something. Probably the thing I was most upset about my whole career was Spring Awakening. I fell in love with that show. We, we, we did a workshop of it. They had two casts actually and um for this work, week's workshop which was the final audition week we learned the entire thing performed it and then they cherry picked their people from the two cars we were basically competing we were competing for the like directly competing in front of each other oh. and um i didn't get it uh which is, which this is for like a west end production what was it for? yeah it was for the west end transfer of exact of michael mayer's exactly the same production wow so i'd always been aware of him and then looking was one of uh, one of my favorite tv shows um and yeah kind of i just you know i think he's fun i think he's such a good actor and he's and there aren't many people who bridge the gap between musical theater and film and screen work that he does i think he's in quite a rare position where he's respected in all three of those mediums as well and uh yeah so it was a real like i was really excited to to kind of um get to work with him and fortunately we just became really fast friends. We had a two week rehearsal period and, and um, in which we were like encouraged by night to bond with Kristen. Uh, and so I think being around an eight year old and being part of it, I'd never been part of like a kind of 
family dynamic with another man before like it was quite an interesting thing I don't think I want children myself but I was like oh this is and I don't know spending so much time around a kid I think it just makes you more like open and playful and childlike yourself and we just all had so much fun and she is she's like one of the most charming disarming sassy spicy little people in the world her first movie Knight was really coaching her and teaching her how to how to act. She'd never acted before, and we were we were kind of relearning about acting ourselves. Me and Jonathan were like, "Oh, oh yeah, no, that's how we should." <laughs> All right, you know, and um, yeah, it was just a really nice two weeks preparation before before the film, and we became this like little family unit. We still have like a she's an incredible texter for an eight year old, and we have a we have a text conversation with her. She she is just really funny, and I think she's like. How did you think she was good in the film? She she was incredible. I mean, the opening yeah. of the film just you're just you're captivated. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. She's like book. she's stealing those scenes off me left, right, and center, which is really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> she actually just booked Spring Awakening. No, oh yeah, she's playing <laughs> she's playing Jonathan's part. She's playing Melchior. <laughs> so you do do a little singing with Jonathan in the movie. Yes. Um. Was that always part of the script or was it like, okay, he sings, you obviously sing, you got to get the two gay guys singing together. There was, there, there was, I think there was a mention that like they sing along, but not to the extent that we sang, like chucking in the harmonies and stuff. And <laughs> I remember the first time, the first time I'd sang in front of him was we were on a, it was like very early on in the filming and night had thrown a dinner for all of us at his house and we were on our way back in the car with Kristen and Kristen's mom and Abby and, and Nikki. And um, Kristen was like, let's do karaoke. So she put on fr- a Frozen song and she made Jonathan sing a Frozen song. And then she, <laughs> and she sang a song herself. And then she said that, then I, she said that I had to sing My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion. Um, and I was nervous to sing in front of Jonathan Groff, I have to say. I was like, Ooh. and also, my heart will go on, but I committed to it because an eight-year-old's asking me to do it. And so that was that was my first, um, that was my kind of first like embarrassing moment, I think, singing that in front of him. Two days later, she turned to me really randomly on set in in between a, a take, and she just said, and she always called us by our character name. So she was like, Daddy Andrew, when you sang, I felt embarrassed. <laughs> I was like, excuse me <laughs> are you feeling okay um but she she loved being mean to me that was kind of like her I know can you believe it I was like she's shamed me shamed me and she picked the song for me as well she was like you sound like a girl and I was like well I was being Celine Dion I was giving my best I was giving my best sublime gaze I, I was just gonna yeah. ask you could you give me a little Celine Dion but as sublime no not yet I'm gonna have to workshop that for you and get back to you with it <laughs> Um, listen, there, this is a, a gay couple at the heart, literally the heart of this movie. Mm. You came out publicly not even three years ago. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. a, knock at, a knock at the cabin playing these full, um, what's the word I'm looking for? These, these fully realized, these these gay men, queer men who are not sidekicks, 
are not supporting. Um, did you ever, when you were, whether when you were coming out privately or professionally, think that this would be a part of your career trajectory? No, never. Never in my wildest dreams. And it kind of makes me emotional to think about it, really. Like, I I left drama school closeted. Um, I in Acting for me early on was very much about could I convince as a, even though I knew I was gay and wasn't acting upon it. Like I was, I was preoccupied with, could I convince playing straight roles? Mm. And if my twenties were like proving that to myself, uh, which feels a slightly shameful thing to look back on actually, because, because I don't blame myself for it, but there is, there's some real shame involved in that, you know, uh, you know, you know, that, that concept of, Many years ago, if someone might have said to you, oh, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't know you were gay, you, you might have felt some kind of validation from that. And that's a, it's actually a, a disgusting thing to reckon that that that, that might have been the way you felt. But I, I'm sure you can probably relate to that as well. And and it's the same in, in my acting roles. I was I was kind of proud of myself for getting cast of these romantic straight parts. And and I was enjoying escaping myself as well, I think. Mm. And then. And then the real privilege of, of this kind of like turn of events. And when I decided to like, you know, come out or claim my identity just under three years ago, I, I actually did it. It was more with a calculated risk that I thought it might impact what I get to do. And but but my authenticity and my truth about who I was felt more important to me, um, felt more important to me to claim that than to hide behind anything for the sake of my career. And if people didn't want to work with me because I was gay or they wanted to stop casting me, then I didn't, I wasn't interested in working with those people either. But, but what I didn't predict and what I was surprised by is that then it seemed to coincide with a kind of um, more queer filmmaking tv making more queer content content being made and also coincided with this interesting debate we've a very hot topic of like do we cast authentically do we have to make a rule for that i don't personally think we do have to make a rule i think that's a, a dangerous kind of path to go down but yeah it's led to this like really um liberating empowering emboldening um like exploration of myself in my work that I didn't think I would ever do I've learned about myself I've invested in my work in a way that I never have before I care about it so much I've always cared so much about acting but I feel like my the skin between me and something I'm playing is so thin now and that likes give it's given me like an access to a kind of emotional depth that I that I like truly in my 20s I kind of I was kind of challenged to find that I think because like there was something slightly robotic in me, maybe kind of some kind of protective layer yeah. in, in, in having not come out and not having fully realized myself, but like not all of myself, I didn't have access to all of myself. Mm. And, and now like now playing these parts, like, yeah, they, it feels so significant. And I feel so, I feel so, so privileged. And I was going to say proud, but I, I feel proud to be gay, but I, I don't want to, I don't, I don't take pride in myself in terms of, I feel proud to be a part of the project, but I just feel really grateful that I'm riding a wave of progress and that, and that these stories are, these people, these men are at the heart of the stories I'm being 
asked to be part of part of telling and i'm really proud of spoiler alert for what it is and the fact that it is about a relationship it's about a gay relationship and um it's about it's a love story and all that encompasses its ups and downs and its trials and tribulations and then i'm really i'm really pleased and gladdened by knock at the cabin and the way that night has handled that that queer couple is that it's he kind of normalizes it. It's about a loving family. It could have been any loving family. And their, their gayness is part of the story. It's not integral to the story. He, he's, he manages to honor our experience in these flashbacks through hardly any words. He makes it really relatable. The scene with the parents, the scene with the homophobia, they're short moments. But what they do is they honor something that I think a lot of us as gay men can relate to. And it doesn't. it's not what the whole film is about. The film is about this loving family and that's at the center of it. And I don't know, I think it's progressive in, in that way. You know, it uh, it's a studio backed genre film and it doesn't, it doesn't comment on, on that. It doesn't like, it doesn't, you know, so much of kind of a bit of a bugbear of mine is that when a, when a gay film is made, a mainstream game film is made at the moment, it ends up explaining what being gay is <laughs> so that it has mass appeal to a potential straight ticket buying audience it kind of goes like if you didn't know what gay is this is what gay is and it's like we don't need it to do that it, that's, right. that's not that's not progression that's kind of weirdly backwards like mm -hmm. and and i like that i like that knight didn't feel he had to do that he doesn't comment on it himself and he really he really um he he just so he was obsessed with love when we're making this film he would say to me particularly me before before the intense scenes i mean every scene's intense but he'd say think about how much you love eric and when it was all about this family unit you know um and i found that like yeah that was really inspiring it was really inspiring to work on that there was never we didn't he didn't ever have he never had a conversation about really about he didn't make it feel special or different Mm -hmm. he just made it feel, he just made it feel real and um yeah that was that's kind of cool but i it's a very long answer to your question in that like yeah i just I, i'm really really grateful to uh be part of telling the stories that i that i'm part of tell me about the moment you hit post on that instagram what went through your head oh you're gonna make me cry um i It sounds dramatic, but I um, I could just breathe easier. I didn't, I, I underestimated how significant that was to me. I really did. I kind of thought, I, it's not that I played it down, but I didn't know what it would kind of like do to me physically. And just for days afterwards, I was like, I needed that so badly. I didn't, I wasn't aware of of how much I needed to do that and how much I'd potentially hung on to, conveniently hidden behind. It just felt, so, I felt so powerful. I felt so powerful to be able to like stand alongside and be part of my community. And I didn't do it with many words either. Like I didn't, I didn't want a big, big explanation. I just wanted something simple. And it, and it was, a, and I said it had been a long 
the road the road to pride had been a long one for me and it really had been it'd been a, and i felt truly truly proud and um it maybe maybe it had taken until that point to really feel that but i just felt lighter i felt i could breathe easier that's i love that you're talking about breathing because that's what it's yeah. about when we yeah. you know i know you know some of my story and you know mm. when i came out as hiv positive or came out as you know a crystal meth addict in recovery i didn't realize how much when i wasn't sharing that how much i wasn't breathing yeah because you're holding on to something you're literally you're physically holding on emotionally yeah. which affects you physically and yeah. what i always say especially in recovery and i know it's not coming out of recovery is not the same as coming out as gay but in the sense of when i say to someone i'm in recovery my shoulders go down right yeah and that's what it is you know i talk about this a lot about kristen stewart when she came out as gay, Kristen was always like this. Yeah, culture changed. Like that. Yeah. That's from, that's from breathing. Yeah. And I suppose I completely relate to that. And, and you know what I was saying about, like, I suddenly, I suddenly had access to myself in a way that I, not only was I, like, holding myself from other people, I was holding myself from myself. Yeah. And I and I I suddenly realized that I had held myself from desires that I had. I didn't really I didn't know I didn't know that I loved drag race. I'd I'd <laughs> forgotten or I denied to myself really early on. I love musicals. I love divas, but I hadn't let myself love that stuff. And and oh, then I, I love this. I wasn't even I wasn't even conscious that like I wasn't conscious that I was holding myself back from me. And like so. Yeah, I could breathe. But also, I was suddenly like, "Whoa, there's all this stuff that I haven't allowed myself. I want to get to know, and I'm still, I'm still there, really. And it feels like a really, it feels like quite a strange, unique position to be, discuss to be doing that in my work, and then to be discussing in interviews like this. You know, if you've held on for something all your life because of shame, it's been an incredibly private, private thing, and then it's. And then you are not that I not that I think that people are taking notice, but you are willing to stand up in such a public arena and uh, explore that. It's like, yeah, I'd like I would just say my my skin feel, feels really thin. Okay, so who are your favorite divas? Let's see. <laughs> oh, who are my favorite divas? Um, Barbara Streisand. Um... Done. Done. We're done. This interview's over. That was fine. <laughs> you Google me. You Google me. You Google me. No, you get Um uh Let me tell you, Ben. I Beyonce. I did a podcast with Barbara. What well, oh. we're doing now, but it was only audio, not. I'm gonna send you the link. Oh my goodness, dude. Wow. Wow. Barbara. Barbara. Yeah. And do you know what? That's like that, her, for example, was someone who like I always knew that she was a diva, and my my dad actually, who was straight, loves her. Um, but I was always a bit. I was I was aware that she was a gay icon, so I was a bit like, Ooh. Yeah. and it really only even recently I'm like, wow, Barbara Streisand. Yeah, like I watched the way we the way we were. But Ben, stop! We're not going <laughs> to talk anymore. I did it. For, I watched it for the first time recently, and I was like. Yeah. The first, okay, now first you're definitely gay, um, yeah. but a bad gay. Um, yes. 
bad gay. I'm making it, up for that. I'm trying. The way we were. Yeah. Literally, this the the hello and goodbye scene at the end. I could cry. I was just that's my same. That I was talking to I was talking to Jonathan about that. That scene. I was like, and you know that they love each other, and they don't they don't say it. And I watched that, and I was like, I am determined. If I still love someone, you know, after you've been with someone, I think you I think you will always love them in some kind of intimate way. Like I will just say it. Life's too short. Like not when they're standing there with their new wife, but um, just in I just think it's a kindness to let someone know that you. Yeah, that I just found that scene just like. Oh, that movie is just yeah, and she's extraordinary in it. Oh, she's she's extraordinary in anything she does. Yeah. Okay, Ben, you're gonna do the gay version of the way we were. Who's your other leading man? Oh. Oh. Um, Jonathan Groff. I'd have to just do a rehash. <laughs> is that okay? You know what? That works. He kind of he he's giving you Robert Redford. Oh, Obviously, oh, I'm, oh, you're Barbara. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm Barbara. I am Barbara for sure. Well, and then my last question for you, since we went there, who's your favorite drag race star? <gasps> Whoa, that is um. Can I can I choose one for like? Oh, that's that's tough. Do you know, I think it might be Alaska. That's not a bad one. No, I know. I was saying it was bad. Oh. No, I just think it's that it's like it's going back a bit, but I just think Alaska, those vintage seasons were amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm I love um, I don't know if you've watched We're Here. Yeah, it's so good. Oh. It's so great. Talking about changing lives. Yeah. And also. It's really the production values of it are so good as well. Like the way it's shot, it's, oh, it's so, good. so tender as well. Yeah. That was Ben Aldrich. And that's it for this week's Just for Variety. Thanks for listening. Until next time, make sure to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mark Malkin. And for all breaking and exclusive Hollywood news, go to variety.com. See you next time. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.